Anxiety and restlessness is in some sense endemic to the human condition. Our hearts are restless until we rest in you, right? We have this sense, even if you don't have a a kind of Judeo-Christian concept of original sin, there is this deep sense in most political philosophy, right, that, that humans are in some way in need of fixing. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny Burtka. Today we are joined by Sarah Gustafson, who is a PhD candidate in government at Harvard University, where she has served as a teaching fellow for Rick Tuck, Michael Sandel, and most recently with Professor Harvey Mansfield. She received her BA at Davidson College and her MA from University College London and Queen Mary University of London. She has been published in Law and Liberty and the University Bookman, among other publications. She has also been a multi-year ISI Richard Weaver Fellow. This past spring, she taught a course in the government department, which focused on anxiety and restlessness in democratic times, which she joins us to talk more about today. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on, Johnny. It's a real, it's a real honor. I'm thrilled to be here. Of course. We're thrilled to have you. And before we get started with our interview, I'd like to thank you all as listeners for tuning in to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast and Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourselves. So before we begin talking about this class that you're teaching, I'm just wondering if you can share with our listeners and our students a little bit about your background. I know you studied history originally and then shifted to political theory at Harvard. So what has that journey been like for you? Absolutely. Happy to. So I've always been a a humanities person. I went to Davidson College, which is not as well known as it should be. When I was there, it had a two-year great books program, which was absolutely wonderful and a very strong honor code. So a very, uh, it was actually a wonderful experiment in living political theory, actually, this this hundred and some year old honor code at Davidson. There I studied history and French and uh, meant to be a classics major, but studied history and French and wrote a senior thesis on the French Third Republic and and public education under the French Third Republic. And and by virtue of tackling this project, I I came to have a lot of questions that were more of a history, political thought, intellectual history nature about the legacy of the French Enlightenment, the history of laïcité, French secularism, and the relationship between religion and contemporary democracy, basically. What was the role of or, or what, what could be, what, what would be the, the, the legacy of, of Christianity and Catholicism specifically in the French Third Republic? And how, how in light of that should we go about thinking about 20th century democracy? And so I had this wonderful opportunity to go to Queen Mary University of London to do a history of political thought master's degree, thinking that you know, if I didn't enjoy it, it would be a year reading the great books. And if I did enjoy it, wonderful. And it's there that I discovered Tocqueville actually, for the first time. So I I came to Tocqueville, not in college, not through any kind of ISI programming, though I wish I had had the benefit of some of that myself. Um, And there I wrote a master's on his, what what he has to say about democratic versus aristocratic historians. And the end of that chapter, he says that doing academic work, doing history, I think it can be expanded to academic work, rightly is a question of elevating men's souls and not completing their prostration. And that has always stuck with me. And so I've continued to study Tocqueville. I took a few years off to work in public policy in the think tank world before coming, before coming here to Harvard to study with 
Harvey Mansfield, Richard Tuck, Michael Sandel, Ryan Hanley, and some really other uh, wonderful other other people here here at Harvard. That's great. And I want to ask about those experiences at Harvard, but that line that you had mentioned, elevating men's souls without What's the second half of it? Uh, not not completing their prostration. Not completing their prostration. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I think it's just a fantastic line. I mean, it points to Tocqueville's unique ability as a stylist as well as, as his attention to the ways in which the democratic intellect transforms what we conceive to be possible politically, right? So Democracy in America, Volume 2, opens with his consideration of, okay, what does the democratic social state do to the intellect, our sentiments, and our mores? And so in this particular chapter, he explains that democratic historians, so those who write history in democratic ages, tend to prioritize great forces at the expense of human liberty, whereas aristocratic historians tended to prioritize great individuals, a Napoleon, a Winston Churchill, for instance, at the expense of these broader, say, economic forces, right? Weather, (laughs) these sorts of accidents of history that can genuinely shape history. But the consequence of getting the balance between great forces and, and individual liberty wrongly is that ordinary people come to perceive of themselves as not having having their own agency and not also having political freedom, right? And so elevating men's souls, that is treating them as as humans with with dignity, with a capacity to act freely in history, and not completing their prostration, gets to that sense of we, we, we want to make sure that within democracies we do not degrade the human person, that the human person remains free in spite of whatever great forces they might, they might face. And of course, I love the fact that he uses the word soul. Where he, Tocqueville speaks constantly of democratic versus aristocratic souls, and that's often a language that many today are uncomfortable with, but I think it, it, it tells us something profound about his political theory that he wants to use the word soul there. Hmm. there. That's really interesting. And that opens up a lot of other questions that I'm restraining myself from asking right now, <laughs> because we're going to get into to all of that. Maybe talk a little bit about your experience with Harvey Mansfield. I know he's retiring this spring. It's a cr- incredible honor uh, you know, that you've been able to work with him. What's it like being mentored by by one of the greatest political philosophers alive? Oh, it's amazing. Professor Mansfield, he was not, I want to make this clear, he was not the person who admitted me to Harvard. <laughs> but but he is an incredibly generous one, gentleman, wonderful scholar, mischievous scholar, quite cheeky in his way. And that's part of what makes him so delightful. I reached out to him when I was thinking of applying to grad schools and asked for his advice. It was the equivalent of a, of a cold call, but over email. And he responded to me within a few days, giving me really wonderful words of, of advice and, and wisdom. And, and so that kind of care and generosity is something that everyone here at Harvard experiences from him. Whether, whether you're on the political right or the political left, he is well known for being extremely generous with, with his students and people here in our department. And, and so, you know, obviously he's quite controversial in his way, but those who, who take the time to get to know him... I think, really come to appreciate his way of approaching politics, which is this blend of, of seriousness with curiosity and also a great deal, again, of, of generosity. I, I'm speaking of generosity a lot because I think many of us know him quite well from his writings on Machiavelli, from his writings on manliness. But this element of generosity that he has is, is not something that's often, often spoken of or is rarely spoken of. And, and so that's something that I've been a great beneficiary of. 
Yeah, absolutely. And do you think when he retires, are there other professors at at Harvard? Obviously, you know, you you can never replace a Harvey Mansfield, but do you see other professors who would fill the shoes or fill the lane of a Harvey Mansfield kind of in in the ranks? It's hard to say. I'm 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 not really sure. I think hiring decisions are are way above my way above my pay grade. So so it's 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 hard to say. Unfortunately, hopefully hopefully there will be hopefully there will be people to to step up and 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 play the kind of unique role that he has played for so many years. Well, you're you're teaching a course, or you just taught a course on anxiety and restlessness in democratic times. And I think you told me about this at ISI's homecoming, and I said we should have you on the podcast to talk about it because it seemed interesting to me. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you put this course together and what are the you know sources of inspiration and texts that you're having your students read through. Absolutely. I mean, it's no, it's no secret to anyone who is on Twitter or, or follows the news that, broadly speaking, Americans are suffering a, a mental health crisis. It's almost hard to keep up. I think I saw a, a, a piece of data the other day saying that suicide is now the second leading cause of death among young people. I think 18 to, to 34 or 44 was the age range. And, and obviously, you know, we've seen, we've seen this in, in older populations too. You know, Anne, Anne Case and Angus Deaton's work from a number of years ago on deaths of despair. So there's a sense in which COVID has only accelerated dynamics that have been play for a really long time. I think you could even point to, to bowl, you know, the famous bowling alone from probably it's 30 years ago now. Right to indicate that that something was not right in American uh, American souls and American civil society, these sorts of things, and and I think colleges and universities have 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 rightly stepped up to try to do what they can to to address this developing developing crisis in our young people, and yet very rarely do I see it addressed philosophically, and and the inspiration for this particular course was threefold. I, I study Tocqueville. Tocqueville is quite interested in this phenomenon of restlessness in, in American American democracy, and this is you know downstream of Pascal, but but he notices it in a particular way in America. And and the, I was on a train last, uh, I guess, in summer of 2021. Yes, um, reading reading The Great Gatsby, having just finished for another purpose entirely Augustine's Confessions. And it occurred to me that the characters in The Great Gatsby have a lot in common with the people with whom Augustine is interacting in Milan and Carthage in Rome, and that they are driven by their passions, that they are restless, they are anxious, they are pursuing certain forms of glory and, and libido dominandi, certain forms of, of, of domination, in all the wrong places. <laughs> and that this has, you know, real positive, not positive, that has real externalities, right? And that the, the novel, The Great Gatsby, shows us how this plays out in the life of this one very particular community on Long Island. And so that was really the genesis of this course. How can we think about this problem of anxiety and restlessness and its relationship to our broader political culture, our broader political moment, uh, philosophically? So naturally, as a result, we begin with Plato <laughs> and the city-soul analogy, because that is really, you know, Plato is the beginning of all of all political philosophy in a sense, and so and so the city soul analogy was really, I mean, a lot of the class is dealing with the substance of the city soul analogy. What does it mean for our souls to reflect our politics, and for our politics to reflect our souls? Let's let's go back to De Tocqueville, and then then we can the phrase you're using, democratic souls. 
is is jumping out at me, but let's let's go to Tocqueville, who who also you, who uses that phrase. One thing I'm thinking about Alexis de Tocqueville. One thing that I recalled from the last time that I read Democracy in America was this anecdote about how Americans they will buy a field and you know plant their sow their seeds in the springtime. And then before they harvest their crop in the fall, they've already sold the property and, you know, moved west for another opportunity. So there's, you know, I think in that anecdote, you can see that that this restlessness has been part of the American character for some time. There may there might actually be some benefits to it in terms of entrepreneurial energy and dynamism. But at the same time, it comes with obvious costs to community and to culture and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about where exactly that anxiety comes from and then also how it has morphed over time since Tocqueville wrote his book. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so I think what's important to note, right, is that anxiety and restlessness looking again, this is part of why the course wanted to look at this broad span. We spent five weeks on Tocqueville, but we, but we had this you know, broader, broader look that anxiety and restlessness is in some sense endemic to the human condition. Our hearts are restless until we rest in you, right? We have this sense, even if you don't have a, a kind of Judeo-Christian concept of original sin, there is this deep sense in most political philosophy, right? That, that humans are in some way in need of fixing, that there is something something off, something wrong that needs to be elevated, right? And so anxiety and restlessness, endemic, what do we do about it? How do we go about seeking peace, right? At the same time, we can also say that, that the sources of these, sources of anxiety or restlessness may not be merely or purely in ourselves, right? That there are structures, political institutions, social, cultural institutions, systems of technology, Tocqueville used the term social state, right? Mores, that customs that we build together that can exacerbate our restlessness, exacerbate our anxiety, right? And so I think that the, the passage that you're referring to about the planting of the field and then moving on, I believe it comes from volume two, part three. There's another wonderful chapter in that where he, when he talks about the duration of leases, in democratic times and how short, how, how leases get shorter and shorter and shorter because we constantly want to move and are constantly looking for the better apartment, the next house, all these sorts of things, the, the better car, right? We only want to lease the car for uh, two years instead of three, something like this. And so, so I think what Tocqueville notices is that this natural restlessness, this restlessness that is in a certain sense proper to human persons because it flows from our freedom, right, is exacerbated by democratic mores, democratic democratic norms. And you're right to say that this is not entirely a bad thing, right? That it conduces to innovation, that it conduces to a certain... He he makes this really nice contrast between Americans and French Canadians. He says, French Canadians, they they moved to Canada, they settled down, they were very content to stay there. Americans are not like that. Americans have this, this thumatic spirit, that, that is a passion. A thumos is a passion, right? A desire to go and, and conquer, a desire to go and, and, and innovate, to make good, right? A faith in human perfectibility, he says. And yet, it is in some way destructive of community, right? It is in some way, it, it, in, in order for it to be ordered, it needs to be balanced by what Tocqueville says are aristocratic remainders, essentially, right? This would be religion, 
uh, appreciation for the township, certain mores that he believes that women hand on particularly, right? And so absent that, Tocqueville actually becomes deeply concerned that this, that this, this American passion, which a lot of it boils down to what he calls materialism, right? Which is the same sense in which we speak of materialism today, that it becomes exacerbated to such an effect that it does start to have much more profound and, and, and lasting negative externalities. So, okay. The, so the, the thumos, the conquering spirit, is that, it's interesting that, you know, he, he observes that the French Canadians don't quite have that or possess that the way that the Americans do. And, you know, Americans are, like you said, perpetually driving West. And once, once the frontier closed in, we, we looked for other <laughs> frontiers, you know? Right. Um, so now is that, the spirit of conquest, though, in some sense strikes me as something that would be part of an, an aristocracy, sort of an arist, you know, aristocratic desire for greatness. I think there's another section in Tocqueville where he's talking about the aims of democratic man are sort of lower than these sort of big, sweeping, noble projects that, you know, the aristocratic mind might conceive of. So is, is that conquering, how does the conquering spirit work or not with the, the democratic mindset. Right, absolutely. So so you're right to say that yes, for Tocqueville in in democratic times, our ambitions become more petty and they become fewer. Right? This is, you know, there, there's a lot of talk of meritocracy these days. Is meritocracy good? Is meritocracy bad? Well, meritocracy is a byproduct of democracy. Right? Meritocracy emerges as a way to justify a certain kind of greatness. Right? That if if you, you, you know, it's good that you rise through the ranks that we have determined to be appropriate and fitting in order for you to be great in a certain capacity, right? But what's what 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 I find so attractive, or one of the things that I find so attractive about Tocqueville is that he's he's keen to note that human nature does not necessarily change; it is just deformed, or reformed, or or degraded in certain ways, right? So so thumos this conquering spirit, which could also go by vanity, by pride, vainglory, right? Different political philosophers have different ways of, of capturing what is a, sort of a, a similar phenomenon. Certainly exists under aristocracy and takes various aristocratic forms. It does not go away under democracy. It gets formed and channeled differently. And then the question becomes, is that good or bad? Or the question I'm constantly asking my students is, in what way good? In what way bad? Because rarely is it just one or the other, right? And that, that's a point he makes about democracy as well, that democracy is in some ways good and in some ways bad. And that it's worth bearing these two, two things in mind at the same time. And back to your point about you appreciating the phrase democratic souls. I guess when I hear that phrase... I, I I immediately felt like I wanted to resist it because, you know, I, I might think of, you know, the democratic, I don't know, citizens or, you know, democratic. I, I, I what it makes me, it, it's, it's what's unsettling about it is to think of the idea of, of democracy actually forming your soul. Normally, I, I guess maybe I just box politics, I, I, you know, off from the, from the soul, maybe I shouldn't do that, but it just—it's—it's it's striking, you know. Or maybe I think I don't want to be labeled as a democratic soul. So, like, what what exactly does that mean? And is this a new 
I don't know, at what point did the democratic soul sort of emerge and how is it different than the soul under the Roman Republic or the soul under, you know, the Roman Empire? Absolutely. Well, so, you know, in this, in this course, right, I think one of the, one of the obstacles that was in my mind that I had to overcome was resistance, possibly, to the use of the word soul in this way. Right. And and yet we see dating back, you know, start starting with Plato, right, that there is this very intimate relationship between between the soul, you know, which in Greek is suke, which is the root of our word psychology, right, and the regime. And 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 Plato very beautifully in the Republic describes how the best regime, how the ideal regime, the city in speech, generation by generation degrades and how that is revealed in the souls of its citizens right? Revealed by the things that they love, right? And I think, you know, this is something that, that Augustine is obviously concerned with, right? How does the Roman Republic, what, what do the, the people of the Roman Republic love, right? Or, or the people of the, or the, of the earthly versus the heavenly city, right? And how does that shape the ways in which they, they go, about, go about their, their earthly, earthly life, right? And so, it's not that this my, my use of the word democratic soul I think has has thankfully has this good pedigree, but I think it's also helpful in pushing back against a certain kind of thought about politics, which is to say that our politics is not a teacher in some way, right? I think there are lots of debates sort of within within our contemporary circles, right? About is is politics downstream of culture, or is it the other way around? And and I think the reflect the, the, the realization that the regime and and the soul reflect each other in some way allows us to say actually both of these things are true, right? That that our politics reflects something of who we are, because because we are particularly in a democracy because we are its citizens, right? And also that and that that law shapes us in some way, and that these things exist in a dynamic interplay. No, I, I definitely, that, that makes a lot more sense of it. And I agree with that. So getting back to the, the anxiety in the soul, which is, is, you know, part of the human condition until the soul rests in God. And even for souls who are resting in God, it can still be a reoccurring, you know, struggle. What, what are the ways in which you mentioned some of the ways in which in a democratic society, we check those with, with other sort of things like, family or the inculcation of manners or institutions of civil society. How did the ancients, what medicine did they provide for anxiety or restlessness? And might there be things we, lessons we could draw from that? Absolutely. So the, the arc of the course takes us into, into the 20th century. I mentioned the great Gatsby earlier. That's really sort of the, the, the end of the arc of the course in a, in a certain sense. But we concluded with Aristotle excerpts from the Nicomachean Ethics and the Politics. And I, I happen to love Aristotle, and I desperately wanted to include him in this syllabus because I think he provides, provides the answers, but it did not make sense, given the arc of the course, to put him at the beginning. <laughs> and it was, actually, it was actually Yuval Levin's suggestion to put him at the end. <laughs> so I, I give that credit where, where it's due to Yuval. And, and so you know, by the end of the course, I wanted to offer students a kind of an answer. And so that answer is the same one I'm giving you, which is philosophy and contemplate, or friendship and contemplation. So virtue-seeking friendships in coordination with 
pleasure-seeking friendships and other, you know, the other kinds of Aristotelian friendship, right? Because I think, well, actually, one of the one of the brilliant things that that COVID probably taught many of us is that just because not all of our friendships are virtue-seeking friendships does not make them less valuable, right? That being in an office with people that we see every day, that is still an incredibly important part of our human flourishing, even if they're not our virtue-seeking friends. And then philosophy, contemplation, leisure in the proper sense of the term, right? I didn't assign Joseph Pieper, leisure, the basis of culture, but but I could have, and I thought about it quite seriously. I, I did assign an essay by Jennifer Frey and an excerpt of Zana Hitz's fantastic new book, relatively new book, Lost in Thought. And I, I would like to think, or my hope is that these two answers, friendship and contemplation, are something that, that all of us, but particularly college students, can, can take away and, and, and do something with. It was, it was remarkable to me the frankness and candor with which students spoke. I've had this experience teaching Aristotle on friendship several times, particularly in this context, spoke about the dearth of genuine friendships that they have. I had one student say that she didn't think that virtue-seeking friendships were possible because she had never had one. It's just, I mean, it's, it's terrible to hear, but I applaud her for her honesty, right? It would be very easy to, to pretend like you have a million, well, you know, maybe not a million, you know, five <laughs> virtue-seeking friends, right? So that, that's the friendship part. The, the contemplation part, again, our restlessness needs to be balanced by, by rest. The week that we read Pascal, I asked students to spend 10 minutes in their room uh, with their cell phone on the other side of the room and just be. And they all said it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. Many of them didn't make it to the 10 minutes. And I think it would be difficult for most people nowadays, but I'm glad they did the exercise. I'm glad they trusted me on that. And so, so the ability to contemplate, to spend time with yourself not to to you know meditate your navel or something right but to but to um but to rest and then also to participate in genuinely leisure activities that are not necessarily restful but cooking a meal enjoying time with friends playing the piano these sorts of things i think those are the beginnings of an answer that come come from the ancients more than from the moderns. Hmm. And that that particular student, without re- revealing too much about their personal details, do you think their situation is that is their example is that sort of widespread? Do you feel throughout our culture, regardless of the institutions or, or sort of class structures, or do you think that's more of a function of being kind of an elite, a meritocratic environment and just? I don't know, maybe the cutthroat nature of always feeling like you have to perform to achieve a certain standard. How, how much of this is wider cultural versus the culture at, at Harvard? Absolutely. Obviously, there, there are special dynamics at play at an institution like Harvard or at its peer institutions, right? But I, I, don't, I don't believe, and I think that the statistics, the data bear this out, that this is a uniquely Harvard problem. I do think, you know, Americans are increasingly lonely. And without... Parents, without you know, this, this is just a problem that will be compounded over generations. If if young people don't see their parents having deep friendships, how are they going to learn how to have deep friendships, right? And and so it, I, I think there's actually something very valuable, or I hope that there is something valuable in in students reading something like Aristotle's account of friendship, 
and yearning for that, having a hunger for that, because that opens a space of possibility where they can go out and create it. Absolutely. Right. And, and so, you know, there's a lot that can be said about, about higher ed specifically. And, and, and I think, you know, a lot of the problems that, that we see in higher ed today, but it's in the context of the classroom that I actually get a lot of hope in the context of these conversations with students where they're really grappling with these, these deeper questions of, of the great books of the Western, of the Western tradition and bringing them to bear on their own lives on these very, you know, deep and personal and challenging, challenging issues that, that, that are striking our young people. I actually see a lot of hope in that. In hmm. what concrete examples might you be able to offer our students or, or things they can try, you know, beyond the 10 minute exercise of, of you know, <laughs> Sit, yeah, sitting and, and contemplating what are sort of like the, you know, the, the easy things they might be able to start to implement in their own communities? Well, I think it is a good habit to make a habit of going out of yourself. So whether that is in the form of friendships and friend groups, volunteering, exercising, cooking, there is a lot of freedom found in doing things with your hands. <laughs> And I say that as a, as, a, as a graduate student who is constantly working with her mind. So, so doing things that are, that are in the world, bodily, physical, material, social, and communal, you know, that could take the form of worship as well, obviously. Making a habit of, of leisure, right? And this may be particularly difficult for some, for some students, I think, depending on their background, right? If they, again, if they don't have it modeled, how do they go about doing it? And it begins... It begins with not scrolling. I, you can probably tell I, I love teaching and I, I love my students. And, and eventually I get to a point in the semester when I can, can make fun of them and they don't get mad at me. And, and so, you know, TikTok, why? <laughs> right? You know, there, there, there are many other meaningful ways. And they know this to be true. They know this to be true, right? Deep down, they have these, these, these deeply set intuitions, right? That it is, that it is objectively better to spend a night with friends cooking or baking cookies or something simple like that, right? Than doom scrolling. And, and so it's a simple matter of activation energy, I think, of, of, of invigorating that, that, again, that yearning, that desire for something more than what is being offered to them by the scripts of the world right now. Be that, be that a Harvard be, or another institution of its, of, of, of similar, of a similar kind, the meritocratic rat race, whatever it happens to be. Okay. Now, zooming out a little bit to public policy. So I know that, you know, you're, you're putting forward friendship and contemplation as cures for some of the ills of democratic life. In a sense, you know, those things have consequences, they are political or they have a consequence for politics. I think about when Aristotle's talking about friendship and how friendship you know, seems to hold cities together. And, and when people are friends, there's no need for justice because they, they, they treat each other well. And so you don't you know, need the, the heavy hand of the law to, you know, adjudicate disputes as much. So I certainly would see both of those things as contributing to sort of a more flourishing city or, or national public life. But at the same time, I'm curious if if any of your, you know, if this study has produced any thoughts in yourself about how public policy or if public policy might be able to help mitigate some of the anxiety and, and restlessness, or if you think generally it just gets in the way. 
I, I do think it can. As I said, law is a teacher, right? And so I think one of the great, again, as a, as a student of, of Tocqueville, I, I tend to think one of the great mis- misunderstandings about Tocqueville is that he is hands-off libertarian. That is, that is not the case. He is certainly a liberal, but he's a liberal of a very strange kind. And he is the first to recognize that, that you know, our, our politics shapes who we are. In some way, right? He's a he he's a great liberal critic of liberalism, is what I like to how I like to refer to him. And so, yes, I do think there are there should be some kinds of of political responses. But I'm not a policy wonk by by profession, despite having having worked in it a bit. And so I don't want to I don't want to to make too many I don't want to make a policy proposal right here right now, except to say that. It is, it is important and worthwhile, and I think downstream of friendship and contemplation, to be willing to address, debate, and elaborate attractive, normative visions of human flourishing, and that our politics ought to work to produce that. Our politics reflects us, which also means that, you know, to the degree that to the degree that our, our political systems, our political structures are not supporting that normative vision of human flourishing. That does not mean we are without agency either, right? And that is where civil society is, is absolutely crucial in changing the Overton window and making possible and making, making visible a certain normative vision of human flourishing. But I'm dodging your question because I'm not a policy walk. <laughs> And, and I, certainly hope to, I, I certainly hope to think about that more because that's a question that has been on my mind yeah, a lot absolutely. since teaching this course. But, but in, my current, in, in my current mode, principally as, as, a, as a student of, of political theory and as a teacher of political theory, I, I, I would like to think that, that a certain form of I, – I would, I would like to think that a certain form of, of – education eventually, and this is to quote Plato, might make the pattern of the city and speech that is in the sky for our souls possible in us. In us. Well, I think that's uh, almost a good way to end. I have one more (laughs) ISI question for you, which is, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is to educate students for, for liberty and for public virtue. And we're creating alternatives to much of what is being offered in, in higher education today. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for us based on this course and based on what you've learned from your students for how we can be doing uh, what, what Russell Kirk described as capturing the imagination of the next generation. So any, any thoughts or insights for our work at ISI? In my experience, caring about, I mean, I think ISI already does this, but the, the, the power to teach and to educate for liberty really depends I mean, it depends on it depends on on how compelling the material is, and it depends on the moral authority of the teacher. So, a lot of what I feel that I have to do as someone who cares about teaching very deeply is to establish a relationship with my students in the classroom, such that we can have substantive debates about hard issues. We can discuss Tocqueville on race. We can discuss Tocqueville on women, and students can feel free to raise objections, to ask difficult questions. And a lot of that is, is it's, it's, more in the, it's, it's more the manner of approaching the material 
in, in the person of, of the teacher setting, set, setting, setting what the classroom can and, and should be. There's, there's a wonderful, I'm a, I'm a pop culture, I love pop culture, and I actually find it helps, helps me c- to connect with my students. There's a, a wonderful movie that came out around the same time as the Dead Poets Society, less famous than the Dead Poets Society, which I do not like at all. And this film is called The Emperor's Club. Okay. And it is about high school teacher, middle high school teacher, who is a Western civilization teacher, and his experience working with a group of young men as they go through school. And his own challenges as a teacher to be both just and merciful, to see the potential in his students and to draw it out, but also to be to be just, right? And 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 to educate them in in a certain kind of moral virtue as he's going about it. And so I think education in the best sense calls something out of students. It does not necessarily convince them to take one position or another, but it awakens them, as you said, to a certain kind of moral imagination, and particularly for political philosophy, to think to, to, to think in a, in a creative, impassioned, but also philosophical manner about about the, the horizons of possibility. And so that's I think a lot of what I what I try to do in the classroom is to is to awaken this, to encourage this, and to also show them that contemplating is fun. Yeah. And it does not need to be attached, often is attached to activism, but it need not be attached to activism for it to transform their lives in some meaningful way. Well I think that's the the perfect note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. If people want to stay up to date on your work, uh, where can they look or follow you? I take it not on not on TikTok, but <laughs> no. <laughs> oh goodness, no! I occasionally appear in in Law and Liberty, as you said. Occasionally on 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 various social platforms as a result, and and I am here at here at Harvard. Um, so my my online presence is is, is pretty minimal at okay. this point. But what what can I say? I'm writing a dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a smart approach. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us, and thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age articles, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.